In this week's show, our topic is Crypto Judaism. We have a presentation by Rabbi Peter Tarlow. The presentation is called Making Ancestral Connections Through Genealogy. It is the second part to his history of the crypto Jews in Spain, where he elaborates on some of the issues faced by crypto Jews as they transition from the normative Jewish community to the greater Catholic world as they still practice Judaism in secret. Rabbi Peter Tarlo. All sorts of political tension taking place throughout Spain. And people were accusing each other. On top of that, Jews, or now former Jews, continued to live in Jewish ghettos. So they were all together. Therefore, they had one set of problems, but they had a new set of problems. But there was a bigger problem that nobody thought about. And that was, remember you had a large number of anti-Semitic laws. What happens if you're now converted to Christianity? To those laws? They're no longer valid. So all the things that kept the Jewish community down, once they had been liberated from those laws, started going very up. A matter of fact, by the middle of the 15th century, it is estimated that over um, half the priests in Spain in the top level of the, um, uh, of the Spanish uh, uh, of the Catholic hierarchy was Jewish. <laughs> uh, Jews brought something to the that nobody else knew. If you have studied all anything of Spanish literature, from mysticism to thought to philosophy, the top church leaders were all Jewish. And the Jewish families encouraged them to go into the church because it was a way to protect yourself. They were seen one way or the other. Now that creates a whole new set of problems. And all of a sudden creeps in, and now you start seeing the relation to, to the Holocaust, a new concept. And that concept is Religion is not determined by faith, it's determined by blood. And so you see for the first time what's called la sangre pura, la sangre sucia. Dirty blood or pure blood. And according to this now new theory, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter how you believe, it doesn't matter how you act. If you have dirty blood, you got dirty blood. And there's no way out. Now that should, if you study here at the Holocaust Museum, should start ringing a bell, because you know who eventually picks this up? Our friend Adolf Hitler. The exact same, as a matter of fact, when you start looking at what's called las cronicas, dealing with the edicts, starting in um, southern Spain, and moving across the peninsula, they are almost word for word many of the same uh, concepts as are seen in the Nuremberg Laws. Uh, is it 1931, 1932? Um, I don't remember the year, but it's 31 or 32. But the Nurb- but those laws become uh, are basically saying it doesn't matter who you are. You remember? Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Holocaust book called The Mushroom. It was a children's book, and it said, it taught children, it said, some mu- mushrooms are, po- 
poisonous. Some mushrooms are good to eat. They all look alike. Some Germans are poisonous. They're Jews. If they speak German without an accent, if they're well-educated, if they say they're German, don't trust them. Now that same concept of the poison mushroom was really introduced during the beginnings of the, Inquis of, of the we're not the Inquisition yet, but during the periods of the uh, first riots. That brings about in the middle of the 14th century, I'm sorry, 15th century, the um, call for some form of Inquisition. Now what is an Inquisition? An Inquisition is nothing more than a special prosecutor. There are no rules. You can go where you want. You're held back by nothing. An Inquisition says, we're going to look and see where you are. And, and we will inquire. To in The word Inquisition means to inquire. We're just going to ask a bunch of questions because the government wants to ask questions. It doesn't matter if you think through the Whitewater Inquisition, the current, whatever. It's the same, you know, a special prosecutor that's that's all it, it was meant to be. The church opposed it. The Spanish upper classes wanted it. Why? Because we see a new problem. <coughs> Jews entered into success in the cities in urbanization. But let me ask you a question. Where are you better off? Are you better off being poor? Are you better off being rich in a poor country? You're rich in a poor country, you can control the situation easily. If you're rich in a rich country, what happens? Rich people or middle class people want to think. If you're educated, you start asking questions. It's hard to give you propaganda. But if I have a bunch of poor people and I say, believe this, whatever this is, okay. You will always see dictatorships try to impoverish people. Whenever a government talks about the fact we want to help the poor, that's the translation into government language as we want to keep the poor poor. And that's exactly what happened within the Inquisition in Spain. So all of a sudden they said, hey, Jews are moving into the urban classes. This is not good. We've got to come up with a system. And that's when they came through the ideas, how do I really know you are who you say you are? No, you're really, because you have dirty blood. Because you have dirty blood, which, but it was a little more bizarre than that. Because the laws were written in such a way that anybody could be caught up in the system. It was like McCarthyism. Let me give you just one or two examples. <coughs> Under Inquisition law, anyone who was caught wearing clean underwear was clearly practicing, secretly practicing Judaism. Now, <coughs> you would think that's insane. You would think if you were making control, you would do it the other way around, right? You would say, Jews must wear dirty underwear. You're trying to make people suffer. But no, they did it the other way around. Why would you think they would have done it that way? What was the logic in saying, if you're wearing... How many people... I'm not going to... Don't show me. <laughs> but may I make the assumption that most people probably are wearing clean underwear? Now we know that for them we had police officers throughout the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century that literally took people's pants down to inspect their underwear. And it was, and, but most people had clean underwear. 
which meant I could make, declare anyone a secret Judaizer. On top of that, the Inquisition had other rules. One, I do not have to tell you what you're accused of. You have to tell me what you're accused of. Two, I do not have to tell you who accused you of whatever that laws. You have to tell me. Three, you have the right to plead guilty or be um, uh, um, uh, tortured until you prove guilty. Guess what most people ended up doing? The first flush was, I'm not guilty. And especially you don't know what you're not guilty of. But then people, if you get tortured, and I'll be in Lima, Peru uh, next week, you go, if any of you have been there, the Museum of the Inquisition has a beautiful exhibit of the torture that would go on at it. If you torture anybody enough, they'll say, okay, you're right. But the moment you say you're right, what have you now done? You've committed perjury. Because you lied, you swore to the court that you were innocent, and now you've changed your, your, your assumption. Under Inquisition law, you are always considered guilty until proven innocent. And because the state declared you guilty, your family paid for your torture. Because why should the people of Spain have to pay for your torture? So you, it was not a happy you know, circumstance, to say the least. Not everyone wanted to stay in Spain. One of the great examples of how uh, we see this type of world is, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Don Quixote. Written by Cervantes, a crypto Jew. What is Don Quixote? What is the, uh, his sidekick's name is Sancho. And if those of you know Spanish, so Sancho is Chancho, pig, and Panza is Panzon, belly. Uh, Don Quixote begins in the Tomo Primero, the first level of the book, with what? He goes crazy from reading, who were the only people read in the Iberian Peninsula, reading a language that, with an alphabet that no one can recognize. And his name is Quixote, which is Kadosh, holy. Or, but Quixote also means in Old Spanish to be separated from. So he was a person apart. He goes schlepping around Spain. And what does um, Sancho Panza say to him? You might be on the mule, pero yo tengo la sangre pura. But I have pure blood. In other words, the first thing you see under inquisitional system is, give me your money and I will give you prestige. A very different type of world that begins to see. Again, very similar to what you're going to see in Hitler. Slowly but surely, these people uh, are isolated, they're upset, and some of them are looking for ways to get the hell out of Spain. They don't want to be there. You can't blame them. There's you're guilty till proven innocent. Any, if you're success, if you're having a business and you have a competitor, what's the smart thing for the competitor to do? You Wells Fargo Bank, okay? So you know what? I'm from whatever bank it is. This guy is secretly Judaizing. I'm now torturing you to death. So, and I get rid of my competition. Zappo, okay? That was taking place all across Spain. 
So some of these people start looking for places out. Now, at the same time, we have the notion that there's land west of Spain. The story you get in school is that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that he uh, went and convinced the queen, she sold her jewels, etc., etc. Et of course, if you do any thinking at all, you realize none of that can't be true. One, Spain is bankrupt. Two, the queen has no jewels. Three, she has an, she's illiterate. We do know today that the expedition of Columbus was most likely, and by the way, Columbus didn't know a word of Italian, and uh, was from right around Barcelona, uh, and, his, and Spanish is perfect, and you know, no matter how well you know another language, unless you literally grew up with the language in a parallel, a native speaker always catches something. There's always something slightly wrong. I speak very good Spanish, but if you listen to me long enough, you hit something wrong. You, you find there's some phraseology or terminology, or I'll miss a preposition or something, because it's not my first language. In the same way, if I have lots of friends who are Latinos, but I listen long enough, even if they don't have an accent, they some, I'll say, where were you born? <laughs> something just doesn't sound quite kosher. Okay, There's something just slightly off. Columbus writes his dialogues in perfect Castilian Spanish and doesn't know a word of Italian. That should be a clue. Second clue, he uses the Gregorian rather than the Julian calendar. The only people in Europe who used the Gregorian calendar were Jews. Thirdly, he puts on the top of his family literature, he writes the letters Bet-Hey, uh, for blessed are, uh, is the Lord, in, which except in writings to the queen. It's left off. <laughs> now, while we can't prove it most likely, like if I were betting my life, 99% certainty is you're going to have that Columbus came to America. First of all, they knew there was land west of, of Spain. How do they know that? Because the Vikings had been here. They were doing trade. There were rumors across all of Europe about bringing back furs and other things from Canada. So they knew there was, they didn't quite know where, they didn't know how far, but they knew where he sold. But he had a spin. So he, so he told everyone he's going to India, he's, uh, uh, the queen sold her jewelry. They made up a whole story with the beginning of fake news. And, uh, <laughs> and they get, and they get, uh, and, and the purpose is they wouldn't have let him go for any other reason. They would have held it back. He comes to America, and uh, again, he doesn't know it's America. He knows there's some place west of, of Spain. Comes to America, and uh, when he comes here, and if you remember, he goes back and forth. Well, you are 4,000 miles away. You're out of the Inquisition's grip. And so people start coming um, in the Spanish world. Now, we're not talking about the English world. Okay? The English world is looking to develop colonies. The Spanish world was much less interested in that. They were interested in exploitation, especially in gold. So and they're coming from a different, you know, a different perspective. But they're sending people, and Jews are saying, "Ha ha! This may not be a bad idea. You're getting out of Spain." 
we know certain things were taking place. One, in the Inquisition period, Jews did not have last names. To a great extent, names that ended in EZ, such as Jimenez, Gonzalez, Ramirez, eh, Martinez, <coughs> etc. Um, the EZ is Old Spanish, meaning son of, and was usually a name imposed on the Inquisition in order to say, how do you know someone's Jewish? I mean, it's not like saying, unfortunately, a, in America, when they wanted to show prejudice, they could do it by skin color. But they couldn't, they, everybody had the same skin color, so you couldn't do that. So they gave them a last name that ended up, and it usually had one of three things. It was either ended in EZ, or the Portuguese version, which is ES, such as Cervantes, and Mendes, the famous banking house, or they gave them geological names, such as Rio, Montaña, River, Mountain, something like that, or biological names, such as Manzana, or Manzano. So the, many of these people left. They fled. And many of them went to the port of Veracruz. Now, when you're studying crypto-Jews, it's incredibly difficult academic study because these were people who wanted to hide. So it wasn't like they were trying to say, you know, I'm, I'm, they were doing everything they could so you couldn't find them because it was dangerous to be found. So therefore, the whole system is based on making every piece of primary data false. And, 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 you, and every rule of history does not work with crypto-Jews. So, for example, why do they come to Veracruz? What does the name Cruz tell you about what it would have been? Cruz is cross in Spanish. Meaning, it was a safe place for Jews. For example, I work in Bolivia, Santa Cruz. As soon as you use the word Cruz, you pretty much know that Jews were involved in founding it. They weren't going to say Santa Estrella, you know, uh, uh, Holy uh, Star. They would use exactly the opposite. They would switch it. They would make sure that somebody went to the uh, priesthood. Uh, if you look at Mexican food, it is very heavy on pork and melting of milk and meat. Why? Because it was a way to be safe. You wanted to cover, not me. Look. <laughs> look what we got here going, gang. There's no way in the world that I could be Jewish. So you, you lived with a very different type of world. Some of those people started, they mainly ended up in Mexico City at first. But maybe soon developed a new problem. And that new problem is that the Inquisition shows up in Mexico City. And so people get on their high horse, literally, <laughs> and they start going north. Now eventually, they will come as far north as about San Antonio. But think about it. What city is most famous in northern Mexico? Monterrey. Aha, it's in the province of the state of what? <coughs> Nuevo León. What's Nuevo León? And where did they get the name Nuevo León? From New León, which is a province in Spain. But keep thinking, you're, you're okay, but keep going further back. If you were going to set up a place 
to hide from the Inquisition, everything has to have a double meaning. What is the symbol of Judea? A lion, Leon. So guess what? You could call it Nuevo Leon, meaning like you're naming it after Spain. Oh, that's all I'm doing. But anybody in the group immediately says, wait a second, they're talking Judea. And you call the capital city Monterrey, meaning a, 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 a high a kingly mountain, royal mountain. And who sat on a royal mountain in Leon? And, and you're there. You're, I know you're just keeping. Uh, who, who would have, you, you're now back in, in Jerusalem. Who would have sat? Who was the rey that you would want to talk about? The king who was David, who therefore became the symbol. In other words, you mix the Spanish language in a way that, and that's called Romana Clef. The outsider reads it one way, the insider reads it the other way. So in, the, in, the, in Nuevo León, we see the famous story of Carvajal. The first governor of Nuevo León is a family, Carvajal family. Still a very famous family in Texas, etc. And what happens to him? He's burnt at the stake for secretly practicing Judaism. So the founder of Nuevo León in the city of Monterrey is burnt at the stake. Now, who comes to northern Mexico? It was northern Mexico a pleasure without air conditioning. <laughs> How many people would like to live, or even southern Texas? No air conditioning, lots of rattlesnakes, lack of water, the place is miserable, mosquitoes every place. Ah, get me out of here. Why would you go there? Because you didn't want the Inquisition to follow you. You wanted to make life you want it to be as far away as possible. Guess who they are? How many people here come out of those roots? Those are the roots of people who came, whose families wanted to escape the Inquisition, and said, you know what? I'd rather live with mosquitoes and rattlesnakes and no air conditioning and be alive than be dead under the Inquisition. And so all of a sudden we see a whole new world of Spanish that's developing. But in reality, we can argue there are three countries between Mexico City and us. North of I-10, we can call it the real Anglo-United States. South of an imaginary line from Monterrey to uh, Tampico on, on the ocean is truly Mexico. And in between, we can call it La Tierra del Rio Bravo, the lands of the Rio Grande. I like the Spanish word better, the, the, the angry river. <coughs> These were angry people. And they created the world which was a double set of entendres. It was exactly like what Quixote did. They were people who were afraid, who had to live their lives one way. They were survivors. Just like we talk about the survivors of the Holocaust. These were people who were survivors of a ethnic cleansing, they were people who were survivors of a cultural cleansing. They were people who had a hide who they were. And they lived under what was, for those of you who are familiar with Spanish literature, what's called La Leyenda Negra. La, 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 la Leyenda Negra, which is translated into English as the Black Legend, basically said, if you're Hispanic, you're no good. 
So much of that practice still exists today. In other words, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you study, eh, you're really not quite there. There's a little... And just as it was said of Jews in Europe in the 19th century, the same thing was said of Latinos, especially in this part of the world, were probably of Jewish origin. Now, we don't know exactly how many people... You know, and, and later we're going to talk a little bit about genealogy. The Israeli government estimates right now that throughout Latin America, 60 million Hispanics have Jewish blood. Is that correct or not? I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, you'd have to do a DNA test on 60 million people to be absolutely certain one or the other. That's, it's, but maybe it's 20 million. Maybe it's 30 million. What we do know is it's a lot of millions. Many of those people, guess what? They kept going to as far north of Mexico as they could, like here. And when we look at where we are today, places such as San Antonio or Houston or Austin are people who, when I take, when Jacob and Nathaniel and I take people to Israel, <coughs> and I say, you, you're not going to see yourself in a foreign country. You're going to see yourself at home. All of a sudden, as they learn their story, they come to understand that we're really one family. Just as Ashkenazic Jews suffered from Hitler, Latinos suffered from an inquisition. In both cases, we were one people. Yes, somewhat divided, but if we look at the culture, we look at the food, we look at the language, we look at the um, expressions, they're interchangeable. Uh, one from the other. So today was really a chance to begin to understand it's not what divides us, it's what separates us. I began with three stories. One, the people in Belmonte, who only 500 years later discovered they were not separated from the rest of the world. The story of the people in Peru, I'll be there next week, who, yes, Intuitively, they knew to have Chinese food at Christmas. That's the funny part of it. But the real part of it was that they are rediscovering who they are 500 years later and, and refining their, their blood. And, and the story of the person at Texas A&M. When I was running at Texas A&M, the Center for Latino Jewish Relations and Crypto Jews, there was never a week that I didn't get people calling me say, you know... We have a white tablecloth on Friday night. Or we're told we don't eat pork on, 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 on Saturday. Or we light two candles. Does this have anything to do with, you know, could this be a Jewish thing? It consistently, people were looking to figure out, who am I? What am I? Just like the Jews of Germany, so many of them after the Holocaust took the question, what am I? Who am I? And how did this happen? The same thing is taking place today in the Latino world. So I want to thank you all for listening. Hopefully you got something out of it. Go ahead with Q&A now um, before we move on to the next section. So um, are there any questions that we have for Dr. Carlo? What, what impact did mixing with the native population when they came over from Europe to Mexico and other parts of Latin America have, for, for better or worse, on their attempt to hide from the There certainly was some mixing. There's also, though, interestingly enough, less mixing than sometimes we thought. 
Um, in Tamaulipas, for example, there's a book called El Libro Verde, which basically says which families marry which families. So there was, you know, that other side. Some mixing would, would have been good because it would have kind of hit things a, along the way. And again, you're trying, you're doing everything you can to make sure that someone doesn't figure out who you are. So you have this, so that becomes part of the genealogy. Uh, Laura's husband, Rick, was saying to me that he's 60% um, Native American. I said, yeah. And he said, according to the Mormons, all Native Americans are really Jewish, so he's really 61% Jewish. <laughs> he loved that. So that but, but, you know, there was probably lots of mixing that was going on. That's one of the ways when you do, when we'll talk about genealogy, you cannot just say, you know, this is 100% certain here or 100% certain there. I should also say, to be quite honest, the DNA is also a little bit questionable because it's a new science and it's really the numbers you get are dependent upon who is in that database. So that the databases, as they become more sophisticated, are going to give out more, you know, uh, information. It's a great tool for, say, someone like my son who's a defense lawyer. That's a different type of DNA. But the genealogy DNA is, uh, it, it gives you an idea, you know, but, but I wouldn't take it as a 100%. But there clearly was mixing that took place. And the other side of it is, you know, we're discovering in lots of ways. For example, when I grew up, there were 10 lost tribes. Then we discovered that there were nine lost tribes. We had the tribe of Dan from Ethiopia. Then we had the tribe of Menashe from India. Now, how is that really one of the lost tribes or not? I don't know. But part of history is not only what is data-driven, it's also what you believe. And so there's two sides to history. And, some, and, and what we do see is when so many people from this part of the world end up in Israel, they consistently say the same thing. This is not a foreign country. If they, I don't understand the Hebrew, but it feels I know I'm home. And, the, and that, in science, we would call it a recessive memory. So exactly where that goes, we don't know. I wish I could give you a better answer, but that's the best we have scientifically. The group who thought they were the only Jews in the world. Right, the ones they, in Bumblech. Right. How did they believe they got started? Oh, no, they believed everybody. They, they thought they were Jewish like anybody else. They thought everybody else died. Oh, okay. They were the last remaining Jews of the world. Okay. So it wasn't that this came out of the earth. Mm -hmm. um, and when they were discovered by... Uh, engineers from uh, uh, Poland in the beginnings of the 19th century, they were flabbergasted to meet Jews who didn't look like Portuguese. Because they just, you know, on the other hand, I grew up in New Jersey, in New York, and how many people in New York and New Jersey say to me, they're Jews in Texas? <laughs> and, and I have to say, you know what? There is Jewish life west of the Delaware River. Not much, but there is, but it does exist. So they go, really? You know, so all of us are a little bit uh, egocentric. Not only Texas, but we might migrate to the United States to Corpus Christi. Yes, yes. And by the way, how would you have the name Corpus Christi? Well, the holiday, they came down. Corpus Christi. If you were hiding from the Inquisition, what would you call yourself? 
body of Christ, Corpus Christi. The great name as a as a as a techno- technology to hide from the priests. Remember, the priests had gone as far north as Corpus Christi and as far north as um, New Orleans. So now there was a difference. The, the French had a very different way of seeing it than the Spanish. What was the what city went longer than any other city in Texas without a church or a priest? Laredo. They didn't want one. You know why? Because 98% of the people were Jewish. And they would take a chance on having the priest bringing an inquisition. So whatever they did, they figured out some way. And even today, you know, there's a... a and of course, it was no Nuevo Laredo. It was just Laredo, you know, on both sides of the river. These people did not want a Catholic church. And when they finally were forced to a Catholic church, they got rid of the priest, one after another, because they, they didn't want to be checked up on and have somebody saying, what are you doing or not? Any other questions? You know, as bad as the Inquisition was, when I think back about what you just said again here this evening, <clears throat> as bad as it was and what it did, it in and of itself probably changed Western culture more than anything else, because to your point, the only people that could read and write and do math were the people that the diaspora forced out both north and south so in the right. and all of a sudden they say, I'm going to still do uh, what I do. Yeah. So trade and everything else began to happen across the world at that point, really because of these people who were then spread all over the place. So there certainly was major changes. It was considered to be very dangerous to read. And if you think through the Catholic world, you were not allowed to read the Bible right. until the end of the 19th century. That was a that was a you you could be arrested for something for, for reading the Bible. So uh, that was one of the big fights between Protestantism and Catholicism. Uh, but these people did remember Don Quixote goes crazy because he reads. The the, the push here is consistently the same. Education leads to insanity. <laughs> Maybe that's true. I don't know. That's another reason. <laughs> in, in Maimonides' period was what, 12th century? Yes. But the understanding was that Spain was a pretty uh, ethnic, get-along country. Yeah, right, convivencia. Yeah, more than only place in the world. And then all of a sudden, at that point, it begins to change is when he leaves, right? He leaves due to the changes. Right. Because there's a radical group of Muslims that come in from, from uh, Morocco who take over Andalusia. And, he, and the family says, get the hell out of here. Right. Um, they, were, they would have been called today radical Islam versus classical Islam. <laughs> so, um, but there was a, a group from Morocco that was very difficult to deal with. <laughs>